So again, forests in the trees at a local, national, and global level is what's actually going on in the real world. I'm not making a hypothetical, I'm simplifying reality, but reality is precisely that degree of complexity. You are listening to the AFIRE podcast, real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. You know, I, I just, I love uh, talking with Parag Khanna uh, in great part uh, because he kind of brings such a broad view and he brings us so far out from just a discussion around what the exit cap rates of a particular asset might be, but to, to kind of look at the entire environment and start understand what's going on inside and outside. And just so you know, Parag Khanna, who's been a guest on the AFIRE podcast uh, last year and was also a, a speaker at the uh, February 2023 AFIRE conference, he's a founder and CEO of Climate Alpha and a founder and managing partner of Future Map, which we'll talk a little bit about later in the show. But he is also an international bestselling author of seven books. I don't think he sleeps, uh, including the most recent New York Times bestseller, Move, Where People Are Going for a Better Future. So I, I can't Thank you enough, Brock, for, for continuing the conversation with us. Uh, thank you for joining the AFIRE podcast. Well, thank you so much, Gunnar. It's great to be back. So uh, you're sitting in Singapore right now. Uh, it is the third week of March. We've had a couple of bank failings. Uh, everyone's kind of freaking out at the moment around that. And, and we're essentially, we're dealing with a storm. We're dealing with some localized weather, if you will. But there are these long-term issues that perhaps have far more impact over the, last, over the next 10 to 20 to 30 years. Uh, and it essentially should be what investors, especially institutional investors, have top of mind, and many of them do. So I, I'd love to kind of start with your global view, uh, Mr. Globetrotter mm -hmm. uh, Parag Khanna, as, <laughs> as you think about what what should we be thinking about when it comes to migration, climate change, and and real estate values? Why does it matter if I'm sitting and, and making good money off of um, my latest uh, real estate uh, portfolio in, in in Miami or Washington, D.C. or New York, why do I care about what the migration patterns are on a global basis? Well, I wouldn't fault today's investors and asset managers for, you know, being focused on today's cap, you know, on the cap rates and obviously on the market turbulence and what's happening with interest rates and those decisions. Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of volatility in the market right now. And it's now spreading into really all uh, property types, not just the commercial, which has suffered so much. But now, obviously, um, interest rates have affected the housing market. We're starting to see a slump in uh, in prices there, uh, which is obviously to be expected for, for a number of reasons. But where this does come together directly with climate change and migration, because I think, you know, part of the premise of your your kind of creating an archetype of a person who's saying climate blah. But actually, you know, what we do is really interdisciplinary thinking. And the point there is that if you map out locations, let's take just the United States, where you already have a history of or, or a set of conditions like uh, susceptibility to or, you know, high mortgage default risk, especially in a high interest rate environment, and then you layer in what we call the resilience index. It's one of our proprietary uh, tools, which shows um, not only the climate vulnerability to physical risks like flood, storm, heat, fire, drought, sea level rise, but also the socioeconomic and infrastructural vulnerability and weakness of a location. 
you suddenly get a picture that all investors should be thinking about in addition to just what's today's you know income uh, this year's or the cap rate and this so it becomes extremely important that you um i mean the harsh way to put it is that these are no-go areas right mm -hmm. the broader message though is that this kind of data reminds you that all places will not revert to the mean that you will not simply as a result of you know bouncing back from covid bouncing back from a natural disaster that everything is just going to go back to the trajectory that it has been on or had been on for decades which is up and to the right and so to tie all those kind of bottom up you know facts together um is that realization that globally speaking Real estate has been a safe asset and an inflation hedge, uh, a source of growth, obviously, uh, nest egg, store of value that has appreciated uh, for centuries, you might say. Uh, and yet now the world is being divided. And now we can go to the global level, pan back, right, uh, into places that are going to continue to go up and to the right, maybe even accelerate and appreciate faster than they would have. But a lot of places that are not, mm -hmm. that are not going to recover you know, and um, and I think that's part of what we do is to sort all of that out. It's part of what my own reportage and research analysis has been around globally. And a final piece uh, around this is the demographic, right? The migration. But demographics and migration are related, but not identical. Just right. the demographics. We are in this extraordinary moment, as you know, Gunnar, where the world population is basically reaching a plateau. Right. Uh, Eight billion people is the number that we were told on November 15th of 2022. And the world population is probably not going to reach 10 billion people. So suddenly, after a century of the world population uh, quadrupling from 1920 to 2020, um, we're reaching what I call peak humanity. So suddenly the distribution of people around the world, the distribution of people who have the cash, the savings or the credit uh, to be able to invest in fixed in real assets and real estate is actually finite. Mm -hmm. It's finite. Well, it's not just that, finite. Essential yeah. to our business model is this idea of a, of a steadily or perhaps, you know, very uh, rapidly increasing population. That you know everything about what Absolutely. we do. If if you're based on what the what the value of an asset is after you hold it for ten years, it's all based on the fact that more people are going to want to be there than ten years exactly. ago, and that depends on more people being there. Uh, so right. you know, again, you're right. If eight somewhere around eight billion is our peak on a global basis, there's going to be a lot more perhaps losers than there were before. It's less of a a, a, a no brainer that that the population always grows everywhere. Yeah. So when I was writing the move book, I set I set out to answer what was I knew it was not going to be a simple question, but can, it can be expressed simply. Let's imagine that in the year 2050, the world population is nine billion people. Just call it nine billion. Where will those nine billion people be distributed, knowing that that is in fact peak humanity? And do something of like an agent-based model, right? You have 150 million square kilometers of surface area across the continents of the world. Right. You have exactly 9 billion agents. Distribute them, but you're introducing these factors that make the outcome very complex, like, for example, climate change. Right. Right. And so that's the kind of intellectual simulation that I ran and then Climate Alpha was born as a statistical AI-driven way 
to answer the same question, not in a literary, journalistic, academic way, but in a rigorous, you know, machine learning, AI way that basically prices the future of geography. Uh, and that, in a nutshell, is what may help us to answer this question, which is to price the future of geography. And that's what actually we set out to do. And to, to my knowledge to date, no one has really tried to do that for a number of reasons. One, we have taken it for granted that either it's stable or it's appreciating, so we don't need to. Right. But now with the demographics and the climate taken together, right, and this and this really competition among locations for that marginal dollar of investment, whether it is from a home buyer or from a, a, a sovereign investor, right? Suddenly the price of geography is not something to be taken for granted. Now that's difficult enough to figure out in the, pres in the present. Uh, I tell you, it's obviously a very, very large um, exercise to do for the whole planet for the future. But that, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. and, and your focus then is primarily how it's not the whole globe that you're trying to, to price at this point, or are you? Well, we're getting there. We're getting there. So we've started with uh, the United States and Canada, uh, which are fully covered in the model. Now, obviously, as you know, for, for all major, I mean, for global institutional investors, the US, Canada, the UK, Germany, Japan, Australia, these markets are the most significant, the most you know, liquid and transparent and regulated and so on and so forth. Um, however, uh, the methodology that we take and approach that we take that is, of course, very geographical, very data driven uh, by sheer brute force, the structured and unstructured data that we collect, whether it's climate models, socioeconomic data, real estate price transaction history, um, all of these kinds of things, you know, running all of that and building models for each country in the world can be done. And you can do large clusters of countries at the same time based upon either their geography or common uh, socioeconomic characteristics or common historical performance of their uh, property markets and so on. So believe it or not, uh, over the course of this very year, 2023, probably by the time you and I next physically see each other in person, maybe, maybe as soon as this fall, we will actually have the entire terrestrial geography of the planet uh, on the platform. Everything. Wow. And and the kind of insights that you can gather just from seeing the whole thing, I think, is going to be dramatic. Um, I, I'm curious, as you're trying to model this, obviously, you've got a lot of variables that come together to make change happen. I'm thinking about how things don't change for a while until the system just builds up to a point that dramatic change occurs. So for example, right now, we have some markets uh, in the Sun Belt in the United States <clears throat> that are doing quite well, um, that have had an amazing run over the last few years. Um, but there are some forces that are building that may either abruptly uh, slow that, that growth or even reverse it. I'm thinking in particular about water-starved regions of, of the Southwest, say places like Arizona. Is there mm -hmm. going, I mean, they're fine right now until they're not. And then you see dramatic exactly. shifts. So how are you modeling that kind of dynamism that doesn't necessarily follow the same line even of, as the climate? It just follows the line of how we react to the climate and how the geopolitical forces react to it and how you see more tension and more problems there. So how are you thinking as you're modeling these, 
How are you thinking about these kinds of factors and how they don't move in in straight, beautiful lines, yep. but they, they tend to be much more dynamic than that? Exactly. And these are what are known as threshold effects or tipping points. And, and modeling these and gaming these out is, on the one hand, sort of fun and novel and, and really interesting. On the other hand, obviously, it's devastating, depending on the actual implications for a specific location. But again, to be for, for uh, armed uh, and forewarned, uh, is to have that uh, that knowledge to be able to act accordingly, and our behavior will either be reactive to uh, what actually happens in terms of those tipping points, um, or perhaps we'll act with a certain degree of foresight. And so, to take a place like the Southwest is a really interesting bellwether. Specific case of you know, say Phoenix, Arizona. Right now, obviously, the market is hot. People are moving there. It's low tax. It's sunny, and so on. But you can imagine a scenario, scenarios where the um, either the water supply uh, becomes inadequate, uh, you know, to meet the demand, especially given a fast-growing population. You could imagine heat waves stressing the electricity grid, which obviously has happened in many other parts of the region. You can imagine both things happening in tandem as well. Now, with our models, you know, you'd almost be able to say, okay. You know, if there is insufficient investment in power and in water desalination by X year, but with the heat trends going like this, you can actually imagine a, a breaking point and that could come in, you know, year fill in the blank, um, after which, therefore, there would be a population outflow, right, in that place. You could also build a scenario where you say, in anticipation of this, a building permitting is going to you know freeze up because we know that there are jurisdictions around the country where that's happening, where courts are saying you simply cannot build that project, that development, that master plan, unless you can guarantee the water supply. And if you can't, it doesn't get approved. Now, that may in the short term artificially drive up values in a location because you're, restri you're restricting supply. Uh, so you have to look very closely at the data. You know, markets may not be going up simply because the demand is high. It could be because now supply is getting constrained. Uh, that's very important too. But by building these scenarios and making them public or sharing them with the public sector, you're also therefore encouraging that preemptive behavior that says, uh-oh, do, do we want to stay on the map? If so, we better speed up those plans to build that desalination plant um, and to, uh, you know, and to, and to, and to uh, have a stronger renewable alternative energy share of our electricity supply and this, this, this kind of thing. And so you can head off those futures by modeling those futures. Right. And um, still there'll be places that won't make it right. Um, you know, but, uh, or that will push things, but then also the public becomes aware of this information and then they're going to watch and see if those actions are being taken. And if those actions are not being taken, then they may say, uh-oh, you know, there could be this threshold event, this tipping point event uh, or, or, or kind of marker in the sand chronologically. And I don't want to be the last one holding the bag. Right. So I'm going to sell at whatever the you know, model predicts is going to be the top. Now, all of those things can happen at the same time. Gunnar, yeah. right? This yeah. is the power of... Um, asymmetric information suddenly becoming, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of available uh, to every player in the marketplace. But obviously, our intent is for this to be used in a, in a way that is, um, that is utilitarian, 
let's say, you know, you know, how can how can places where people want to be and could still be and where it's not environmentally devastating to remain or where the cost of being there doesn't outweigh the benefits, those kinds of things. And we we're hoping that that, uh, you know, rational individual and collective decision making is going to uh, emerge uh, from the kinds of analytics that we run. I know that's a big ask. It's a big ask. <laughs> well, I, I mean, again, we're watching we're watching bank runs occur right now, and the the behavior of the masses once something kind of dawns on people, sometimes rational, sometimes not rational, perhaps on the individual basis, not rational on the collective basis. Um, that I, I think this concept of obsolescence. I, you know, just had that conversation uh, with Ethan Penner a couple of weeks ago on the podcast around obsolescence and, and really kind of focusing in on that from the asset level. But what you're talking about is obsolescence on the geographic level, or yeah. if not obsolescence, certainly obsolescence for particular uses or particular population yeah. sizes or or at certain cost levels, et cetera. I mean, we're not going to say it's the end uh, of these markets. It's just they will change dramatically. Um, and mm-hmm. they won't change for a long time until they change very, very quickly. Um, so exactly. how, all right, so I'm an investor, I'm, I'm interacting with your models and with your data. How does that change the way I approach both investing and new acquisitions, but also, frankly, in terms of managing my existing portfolio? So, and that's the way we think about it. Sort of, you know, when you have your existing portfolio, you're playing defense, right? Uh, and then when you're building, when you're in acquisition mode, that's when you're playing offense. Right. Uh, and we tend to start out by taking what is, right, as the starting point. What is in a portfolio could be uh, dozens of assets or, or thousands of assets uh, spread around the country across different property types. And we'll do that modeling of their future, you know, what we call risk-adjusted valuation um, on each and every asset. Um, and that's going to help to establish an, a, a, an adjusted disposition timeline. You know, as every equity uh, fund is thinking, you know, what should be the hold period, uh, you know, buy, sell, hold, so to speak, um, and for how long. And by running scenarios on each asset or each fund, you know, you can actually have a more rigorous way of deciding how long you want to hold on to something. And if you are going to, obviously, to what extent are you going to have to commit capital mm-hmm. to renovating, upgrading, you know, modernizing an asset, whether it is to meet local transition risk kinds of guidelines, right, around uh, energy efficiency, for example, uh, or whether it's to cope with the risks in a location, such as obviously uh, flood risk, which is uh, one of the key, perhaps the key cause of uh, of property damage uh, in the United States, obviously fire and other factors as well, you know, sea level rise uh, too. So that's on the defensive side, right? right? So really adjusting the actual investment committee's decisions around what to do with the existing portfolio. But then and this is the part where we try to emphasize that, you know, climate change is not all downside, right? Especially for America. Now, on the one hand, America is the country in the, you know, industrial developed West that is the most exposed, if you will, right, to climate change and climate risk, you know, obviously more so than Canada, to right. take an obvious, you know, example, uh, less so than Sweden, mm-hmm. right? Um, where I hope your ancestors have left you with some inheritance. <laughs> Unfortunately, no, we taxed them away a long time ago. <laughs> oh, yes, there is that. Um, by the way, tax rates are a key feature in all of this, but we'll come back to that uh, in a bit. Um, so, 
So, um, you know, America is on the one hand, the most exposed. Uh, so it's really, you know, I don't want to say canary in the coal mine, but really the, the test case, uh, you know, for, for so many uh, uh, markets. But on the other hand, it's a very large country. And so one of the things we emphasize is that, uh, is that you know, there is an opportunity, if you will. And when you're building your portfolio, deploying capital, think about building a climate-proof portfolio. Now, that could mean that when you're looking at REITs, right, think about REITs in term, with, with some degree of sustainability metric in mind in terms of the geography, right? Uh, when obviously, whether and, and for equity funds, the whole periods around assets, you know, go longer in locations that have high resilience scores, you know, uh, obviously, there are many places that are underpriced today that have very high resilience. In fact, that's one of our first data science experiments was just simply taking the historical land price of locations um, in the United States and then overlaying our resilience index scoring and applying a very minimal coefficient or weight and saying, what if places with a higher um, you know, resilience uh, of the 40,000 zip codes in America grew just a few basis points, you know, let's say faster than they otherwise would have, what would be the compound effect of that over a 10 year period? And of course, you know, by the miracle of compounding growth, uh, you know, they do, they do quite well. They do quite mm-hmm. well in places, therefore, that are literally, quote unquote, not on the map in terms of investor outlook that are kind of just looking at prime, you know, tier one markets. Suddenly you look back from 2030 in our models you say, oh, I should have picked those places in 2020. Right. And that's what data science and AI machine learning allow you to do in a very, very explainable way. So that was one of our aha moments is how to do portfolio construction, looking back from the future. Um, and, and, and why this is, you know, to bring that to make it less kind of, you know, stats driven and just sort of geographical and kind of bring it home sort of, you know, if if the hot markets of today were always going to be the same, then, you know, nothing would ever change. Right. Right. And, and part of the problem with the way we do with the way the market does data investors, that they're always just looking at the same places, which is why you wind up with this massive concentration risk that you have already. Right. You know, um, whether it's REITs, whether it's commercial um, or even today with multifamily, people are just chasing the same markets and geographies and not willing to extend the time horizon just a little bit uh, outward to look at geographies that are more resilient and therefore will perform. And again, similar to the question about tipping points and so forth, you sort of can create your own reality, right? right? I mean, you know, we believe that, uh, you know, the, there, there's a market making function here that needs to be handled responsibly. Uh, but it's also important to do it because it's almost the benevolent thing to do is to create supply in resilient geographies where it's currently lacking. And that, if anything, for listeners uh, at, at home or abroad, let's remember what we call the, the American dream, mm-hmm. right, quote unquote, which is, uh, which is intimately wedded to the idea of uh, owning and appreciating land and property asset. Well, again, in a world where everything is not moving uh, up into the right in tandem or predictably, uh, you know, the, the burden is on you, whether you're, you know, the investor or the buyer to identify those locations and, and to, and to 
enhance that supply in those locations in the name, literally, of the American dream. So there's a direct uh, line here from data science to, to, uh, to really, you know, um, everyone's bottom line. It, it occurs to me from what you've said that that we have systemic obfuscation in the real estate market in that we base our values on the most recent transactions. So it tends to cloak future value from our eyes. It, it's very easy to not see uh, where that value might be going forward because we're saying, well, you know, this is the transaction that happened last week, and therefore that's the value of this asset, which is is really being illustrated once again whenever we have a kind of market pause as we're having right now. It's always illustrated. We don't know the value of these assets. Um, that's our biggest issue right now in the first quarter of 2023 is that we do not know how much these assets are worth. Worth We have not marked to market. We don't understand what exactly. the market is at this point. Uh, you get some indication from REITs, perhaps, because they're publicly traded and, and there's the, you know, the masses are, are deciding that, that the value of commercial real estate, of office in particular, is different than it was before. Uh, you're seeing in Europe that they are, they are already attempting to mark to market and are seeing 25% kind of uh, hits to the value of office portfolios yep. in particular. And office is just kind of a canary in this. It, it, it impacts, obviously, I think all the different asset classes, especially on a kind of geographic basis as we look at this. As you have learned from, from putting AI to this and data science to these questions, um, what are you learning about how we value um, assets? Are you learning from that um, how perhaps we can adjust our systems to, you know, kind of get rid of the obfuscation, if you will? Absolutely. And you are really right to point out that when one is looking only at income and cap rates, then obviously you can paint a very uh, tautological almost, you know, picture of where things are going in a linear way. And we know that it's quite nonlinear and we know that climate is playing a role on the um, on, on on the demand side uh, as well because more and more tenants are raising those concerns about again the viability right uh, of a uh, of a location um, and being very cautious about that and the regulatory dynamics as well because where you've already have overbuilt office markets you know tenants are going to graduate uh, gravitate towards those uh, buildings that are of higher uh, quality and meet the latest standards, and that's going to be that's obviously going to be problematic uh, for those older older buildings. So simply saying, ah, yes, demand will come back. Let me simply buy up these cheap, you know, after they're marked to market, right? You know, after you take mm -hmm. uh, the, the hit based upon uh, interest rates and and, uh, and and demographics and and just lower demand, um, uh, it's a good it's a good bet to recapitalize that. Well, maybe, maybe no, it's not. Mm -hmm. right? And, and you need to take into account the transitional guidelines and regulations, and you have to take into account, um, you know, the demand side and you have to look at just the, the you could call it the secular um, uh, prognosis for a location from a climate standpoint, because the individual uh, again, tenants, uh, uh, investors are going to take those things into account the more that information is transparently available. So again, there's like a climate mark to market, if you will. Yeah. But then there's a pretty steep discount rate because again, you know, these things are coming at us faster than we thought. And I'll tell you just anecdotally, we only launched, you know, less than a year ago. And uh, in the early part of that story, people would say, well, climate, you know, uh, 
it's just an ESG thing and, you know, we're investors. So, um, you know, the, 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 this is the wrong uh, kind of, you know, audience, let's say. Mm-hmm. Others would say, well, that's a long-term thing. That's 2040. You know, our portfolios are just uh, maximum, maximum five to seven years, you know, at the long end. Well, by the end of last year, I mean, within eight months, right? Literally, no one would say that to us anymore. No one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think something really has has tipped in the mind in which people do understand that this is has to be kind of at the top of the funnel. Um, you know, understanding this is not just a kind of, you know, factor or set of variables off to the side, but something that has to be materially integrated into the investment process. Um, so I don't think that we have to convince anyone of that anymore, uh, because, again, um, it, it's something that, you know, if you're not thinking about it now, you surely appreciate that the next buyer is right. right? And it, even if that's two or three years from now, the rate at which change is happening and people are pricing this into their decisions is, uh, is, 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 is accelerating. So that's a good thing, but it means that you have to react faster. Right. And, and it seems to me that, that we need to pay attention to the behavior of crowds uh, during this time of uncertainty with the global banking system, just as a wonderful illustration of how that works and how that happens and how we need to care about it. I mean, the Miami does not need to be underwater for this to happen. Um, it It's when the realization occurs, not yeah. not when the actual yeah. uh, physical thing happens. Um, so I, you I mentioned uh, you mentioned the Sun Belt earlier again. So as 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 just one data point in the broader reality that over the past 100 years, still more Americans have moved to stressed areas than away from climate stressed areas. And that is actually still happening Mm -hmm. because it has a lot to do with tax, labor markets, just affordability and so on and so forth. But over time, of course, again, gradually, then suddenly, as uh, I guess it was Mark Twain famously said of bankruptcy, right? How did mm-hmm. it happen? Gradually, then suddenly, uh, you know, the the herd might change direction, but the signals are already there. There's no question. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, our view is not to follow the herd in the wrong direction, right? It's to kind of point uh, the arrow, start to bend the arrow, uh, maybe turn it, not necessarily 180 degrees, but lead people uh, into more climate resilient areas. Again, as I said, the good news is America is a very big country. Right. Most people, most offices, most institutions will not have to move very far. Um, and that's a fortunate situation. So we shouldn't hold all geography synonymous with Houston, Miami, or New Orleans, right? right. And then again, as I said before, the warnings issued now could change the behavior now to prevent the worst case scenario. So for us, one of the critical differentiators is that there's a lot of people who just want to talk about risk, 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 right? Um, you know, for uh, for us, it's uh, adaptation, right? Adaptation is a big part of the overall score of a location, which is, uh, again, a fancy way of saying don't underestimate human ingenuity, right? Right. right. Um, if it is worth remaining in a place, if a place can just be, be, be made to remain livable, we can make those investments if it's worth it. Now, ultimately, of course, the market is going to decide right. if in the process of all places thinking about adaptation, a place that even if it's doing the right things is still more attractive relative to other places. 
And that's where doing large scale simulations of, you know, 300 plus million people across 40,000 zip codes, that also has to be done because you cannot treat um, your location as the only location. You know, right. we call this the, the forest and the trees analogy, right? We, there's a lot of, and, you know, you said earlier, think about it from the perspective of the, just the asset manager. And I appreciate that in day-to-day -day real estate investment management, everyone is, you know, people are assigned a building. A right. property, right? They obsess about that one building and property, and so again, it's sort of this ancient uh, proverb of the, or you know, sort of um, uh, heuristic in a way that one needs to think about. You know everything about your tree, uh, your building. You know the 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 bark, the leaves, the twigs, and, and the flowers, and so forth. Which is to say, whether or not your where your HVAC systems are, whether it's LEED certified, your Gresby score, solar panels, you know all of those things about your tree. But you really do need to understand the forest, right? That patch. You need to understand all the socioeconomic characteristics, the overall climate vulnerability, whether or not the public sector is spending on adaptation, whether or not investment is coming in through new corporate um, investment, uh, job creation, all of those things are, of course, part of the forest. And the forest, the impact of the forest on the price of the tree is a lot more than you think it is, mm. right? And so this is this, and then that's just your building within your city. Now it's your building within your city, that cluster of zip codes in a country of 40,000 zip codes in which all of the 340 million agents uh, have decision-making agency and are playing these places off of each other. That's real complexity, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the real world. The real world is not, oh, well, I you know, uh, bought the, the highest house on the hill, therefore I'm going to be okay. Right. Because if no one wants to live below you, right, know your palace on the hill is not worth anything. Mm -hmm. It's not worth anything. So again, forests and the trees at a local, national, and global level is what's actually going on in the real world. I'm not making a hypothetical. I'm simplifying reality, but reality is precisely that degree of complexity that I that I just described. Baked into your comments, there seems to be an interesting kind of optimism. Uh, in, in so many times when you speak to someone, they they speak to so has it always been, so shall it always be. And that certainly is true uh, amongst uh, institutional investors. This is the way this market has always worked. Therefore, this is the way it's always going to work in the future. Now, when you lay it out that way, everyone goes, well, that's, that doesn't make sense. But that is how people are speaking. And I'm, I'm struck in the last year, obviously, we've seen something somewhat miraculous in that, that the, something that we feared for decades occurred, which was uh, an invasion of Ukraine uh, by Russia um, and therefore a cutting, a, a disruption of the entire economic system of Europe based on on energy supplies. And you know, 2 years ago, Germany has always gone for that inexpensive gas and oil from Russia and they will always figure out a way to get around whatever political distaste it may have or risk might be there because they have to have that inexpensive energy. And that has suddenly changed. Suddenly our world looks different than it did a year ago, where not only is, is Europe in general kind of, you know, doing things that they couldn't do two years ago because they didn't have that crisis. Um, but not only that, we have, you know, a revitalized NATO that, you know, everyone who was intelligent said is a, a non-actor or becoming something that's obsolete. And suddenly it isn't. And Sweden is joined on and things like that. So I think 
part of what I'm optimistic about is the more folks like yourself are able to clarify what is actually occurring in these markets, perhaps the more likely that we will change, that we will innovate, we will adapt. And some of these markets, perhaps that are at most risk, will evolve into a different kind of market that is even more exciting and more interesting than the past. Um, do you feel like we're facing at some point, you know, our kind of Ukraine invasion, if you will, from a climate standpoint? Oh, I think that's actually a fascinating analogy in the sense of a shock to the system, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, on the one hand, of course, you know, uh, a, a geopolitical event like this has global ramifications. On uh, part, Partially, it's ring-fenced in the sense that the violence has not uh, sort of undergone a chain reaction, a global uh, uh, mutation, you know, in which you now have uh, wars breaking out everywhere simultaneously, right? For example, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has not prompted China to invade Taiwan, right. you know, for example, right. uh, qu quite the opposite, right? There, There's a bit of restraint. Uh, they don't want to make themselves the center of attention and so on. So ring fencing is really crucial as a concept in resilience, right? You can have crises breaking out, but are you able to contain uh, the spillover effects. When it came to commodities prices, obviously we were not able to do that when it comes to, uh, you know, the Ukraine conflict. And that's actually been a source of instability for the rest of the world. So if you go back to the European example, yes, their vulnerability was exposed, right? I mean, we can safely say that Germany did not sabotage the Nord Stream pipeline. Right, right. We right. know that very well, <laughs> right? Their vulnerability was exposed, but look at how little time it took for Europe to turn lofty words about the green agenda and, you know, investing in diversified supply and alternatives and renewables into action, right? It took one risk of a winter, you know, without reliable power uh, for countries to say, okay, let's not mothball those nuclear plants. Um, let's quickly, uh, obviously, import gas uh, from the United States, uh, more from the Arctic, uh, you know, more from North Africa, more from the Caspian Sea, uh, and so forth. And of course, lots more around just generally investment in, uh, in the green renewable agenda. And coupled with a, a, a fortunately for them mild winter, which is itself obviously a consequence of climate change, right? Uh, you know, they're in a position where their uh, energy dependence, the fossil fuel import dependence from Russia has dropped to effectively zero. Yeah. So that, that is really something. So, so a lot of people say, ah, oh, look, you know, they're, they're so weak, you know, uh, and dependent. And of course, from a military standpoint, that has been, you know, again, uh, exposed, but it's not just about, um, you know, your capacity, it's really about your capacity to adapt, right? As right. I said, so whether it's the local level, or whether we're talking about the geopolitical level of entire regions, adaptation is key. So that's why I, I do look globally. And I think not just about America, I think about North America, right? And going back to earlier books that I've written about geopolitics, in fact, there's a tradition in geopolitics called continentalism, Right. And it's worth making this fundamental point that geopolitics isn't really about countries. It is about geography, mm -hmm. right? The, the political sovereign master of a geography may change over time. The geo is somewhat more you know, immutable. 
What's fascinating right now is that we're, because of climate change, we're dealing with shifting geopolitics and the shifting geography. Right. Because the value of geography, the resources available, the climate profile, the agricultural potential of geographies itself changing, and that's changing the geopolitics too. But when it comes to the market that concerns us the most, right, uh, I think in North American, at a North American scale. And so kind of like what Europe is trying to do with that self-sufficiency and energy and the green industrial agenda. Well, North America, as you know, is doing that as well with the IRA legislation and so forth. Canada is doing it as well. And therefore, I am in the end, and you, you did use the O word, optimism. You know, I'm actually cautiously, accidentally, you might say, optimistic about the parts of the world, again, that, 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 that are most known to your audience, you know, where they're based, you know, particularly Europe and North America, because of those investments that are being made uh, in, um, in energy, renewable energy, in better transportation systems, in climate adaptation, in localized you know, power, in conservation, in cross-border you know, sharing of resources, and then the and also the fundamental economic things, the infrastructure investments that drive um, the resilience and the value of uh, property markets and of real estate. So we we track very closely. We have this thing called the um, uh, the infrastructure renewal index, which is looking at the you know, geolocating power and uh, transportation, other federal investments uh, around the country to identify what that multiplier effect is going to be. Now, because the IRA legislation doesn't add up to what the interstate highway system, you know, accomplished in the 1960s, right, only a fraction of it, there you can calculate a national scale multiplier effect. Um, you know, with IRA, you have to localize it. So that's why we're localizing it with this infrastructure index uh, at, a, at a county and zip code level. But now we're looking at, and this is part of the geopolitical picture as well, what we call the, um, uh, this is a more florid language for you, we call it the, uh, the uh, industrial renaissance uh, tracker. Ooh. So what are those near-shoring projects? Where are they going? Yeah. Which companies are investing a lot? Where is the green energy belt, right? How many jobs is it creating? Because all of those very material things actually do have an impact, obviously, on building occupancy, right, right? and on real estate values. So we're out to capture as much of that data as possible and blend it with the climate resilience of a place. Now, let me bring this, make this very concrete. Tesla builds gigafactories. That's what they do. Those consume a lot of water. You can literally see in groundwater data the accelerated depletion of groundwater supply in places where Tesla builds a gigafactory. That's problematic, isn't yeah. it? Right. We're building semiconductors, right, as part of this big near-shoring right. industrial self-sufficiency technological sovereignty agenda. Guess where those are going? Places that don't have a lot of water supply. Right. Uh, already didn't, and yet these are industries that require a lot of water. So again, this is why you need holistic, kind of comprehensive methods um, that let you see the, the the big picture, the layering of data. Okay, if I'm going to be investing something somewhere, it's not just about how cheap is the land today and what tax breaks am I getting from uh, from a state or a county, right? Um, what is the viability? of this project, uh, you know, based upon the sustainability characteristics and think about those things on the front end yeah. and it'll literally lead you to a different outcome, a different map of where we should be investing and where investors should be going. 
it seems to me that that real estate, because of data science, because of some of these questions, may be on the brink of a, of a real step up in sophistication in terms of how we think about um, how we think about investing, how we think about these properties, these trees, and their relationship to the forest. Um, I am so struck by your accidental optimism, and uh, I think it's infectious. So I'm hoping that that all of us in the real estate investment uh, world become accidentally optimistic as we learn more and more about the world that we're operating in. So we've we've pretty much run out of time, but I, I really want to thank you, Parag, uh, and, and a reminder to everyone: he's the uh, Parag Khan is the founder and CEO of Climate Alpha and a founder and managing partner of Future Map. I encourage all of you to look him up and to read his his recent book, uh, Move, where people are going for a better future. It was mind blowing for me, and I have I suspect it would be for anyone. Uh, so thank you so much, Parag, for joining us on the A Fire podcast. A uh, great pleasure to be with you again. Thank you. You have been listening to the eFire podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. eFire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell an asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. Though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information, the opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources, and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.